yeah, we, we've been having fun the last couple of weeks diving into the book of Mark, and we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? And last week, we, we dove into an uncomfortable topic for many. I shared uh, how my son Elliot was in my office this last week, and he saw on my whiteboard that it said, uh, who is Jesus, the one who cast out demons? He says, Dad, you're not preaching about demons, are you? That doesn't sound right. Well, that was exactly what we were preaching on. Last week, we examined the nature of good and evil, Satan and demons, and, and how this plays out in the life of believers. So every now and again after the service, some of you will come up and, and share with me something that God has, has spoken to you about. I, I laugh sometimes because often what God is telling you has nothing to do with what I spoke about, and that's exciting to me because God's moving. Well, this last week, after the service, my eldest son, Evan, comes up to me. I'm like, okay, uh, what's going on, buddy? Uh, you know, as a pastor, uh, we often have that conversation with our kids, and I was the same growing up. My dad was a pastor, and I used to hate when my dad would ask me, so what'd you get out of the message this Sunday? I'd be like, I don't know. I was passing notes to my sister. I <laughs> but uh, so Evan, he comes up, and, and uh you know, sometimes, you know, what'd you get out of the message? You know, nothing. You told a cool story, Jesus. Well, not, not so last week. He comes up and he said, Dad, um, I'm really glad you talked about this. I've been having a lot of questions for the last couple of months about all these things, and I now have a better understanding, and I wish I could be there next Sunday. My son wants to hear me speak. It's a big deal. Uh, the reality is, uh, my kids, they, every year they spend a week with uh, their aunt and cousin in North Carolina, so they're down there now. But this topic is one that makes so many people uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. One, when we talk about demons, you know, I shared last week, we don't want to glorify Satan. We don't want to give him any credit or glory. We want to glorify God. I get that. Some of us were afraid of this topic because we don't understand what, what this looks like in the nature of spiritual warfare. Others, we're afraid of the topic because... We don't want to offend a theological point of view. Well, if you don't believe in this, then how, do, how does this work? It's interesting to me because this topic, this idea in Scripture, it seems so normal. As we dive into Mark this morning, we're going to see that casting out demons, the work that Jesus did on this earth, they didn't explain anything. It just happened. I think it was because this was such a normal cultural context for everybody. Yes, there are people that are, are demon-possessed. Yes, there are people that, that are demonized. Yes, there is oppression. Yes, this is real. Spiritual warfare is real. If you Google deliverance ministry, uh, deliverance ministry uh, has many different other names. Uh, you, you think about uh, exorcism. You think about... Uh, you know, the power of Christ compels you. I don't know if you've seen those movies, but this idea of deliverance ministry is a real thing. Deliverance ministry, people who walk through deliverance with others, you'll get over 12 million hits on Google. And most of them deal with a singular question or a presumption. And it's this. How do demons affect Christians? Ultimately, this question gets asked and wrestled with because in third world countries, we see this is like prevalent. It's, it's normal. 
people are doing crazy things. They're making sacrifices to idols. They pray to these different gods for fertility, for, for harvest. That's their world. And so it's easy for them to go, okay, you know, demons and the enemy, they have a place in our culture. Not so much here in the United States. And so I think in many ways we, we just gloss over, well, no, I'm a Christian. Satan can't touch me. There's some truth there. But what we see in Scripture is that the enemy is at work against those who believe in Jesus Christ. How does this play out? So we asked these questions last week. We asked very simply, uh, if the enemy is a defeated foe, if we have been given authority over the enemy in Jesus Christ, why is it then that so many Christians do not experience freedom over sin? The stuff that I'm preaching through, I wish I would have had a grasp on 20 years ago. Because I have made, in my Christian walk, the idea of freedom from sin an act of works. If I struggle with a sin, it's not God's fault, it's my fault. Okay, yeah, we own responsibility. But this idea of, if God freed me from sin, why do I still feel in bondage to it? This struggle of, I'm not supposed to be of this world anymore, I'm, I'm, I'm a new creation then why do I love the things of the world so much? What is this connection? And we'll use the word access. Where is the access coming from? I, I settled 20-some years ago that this is just the way it is. As a Christian, you'll never really be free until heaven. But that's not what Scripture tells us. So there's a disconnect. We talked about the battle plan for the enemy. Oh, let me read this real quick. Um, Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a battle going on. There is a fight that's taking place. We have an enemy. He is the enemy of our soul, and his battle plan is simply this. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. We know we have an enemy. And we know that there is a rule of this world that takes place that will end when Christ returns. Satan has authority here. He has authority. God has more. And in Christ, his authority is defeated. Here's what we're not going to do this morning. We are not going to blame the enemy for our sin. Man, I've read a ton of stuff this week, and I've read articles about this stuff is hogwash. No, Christians are separated from the enemy, and he has no claim over them. And, and you know what? If, if you're struggling with sin, then it's a faith issue. Okay, I've read that. Uh, I've also read, man, if you, you think about this, then you're just advocating irresponsibility. It's, it's the enemy's fault that I struggle no, we're not going to blame the enemy for our sin. Sin is a choice. Do you understand this? We sin because we want to. We sin because we like it. It's not something that we fall into by accident. Sin is a choice. My prayer is that as you grow in spiritual maturity, 
you are made aware of that choice sooner and sooner and sooner than in the past. Oftentimes I would come to a crossroads and go, how did I get here? Uh, what happened? Because I didn't ask for any of God's direction. I led myself. As you invite God to lead you, you'll be able to see that crossroad of choice before you get there. Do I honor God or do I not honor God? So we're not going to blame the enemy for our sin. My prayer is that we gain a better understanding of the access the enemy may have in our lives. And in doing so, understand our authority over the enemy. This issue of access is real simple. And we're going to talk about this at length this morning. Uh, imagine that this room is your heart, so to speak. There are things that we do, things that have been done to us, that opens the door for the enemy to come in. And oftentimes we go, well, it's just a small crack. I'll just leave it there. You would never leave your car unlocked in downtown Manhattan. You wouldn't do it. Why? Because there's a culture that exists there that says, it's your fault if you left it unlocked. I can take it because you were stupid. <laughs> Whatever's inside is free game for anybody walking by. Why? Because the door's unlocked. There's access. There's potential. And so what I want to talk about this morning is being aware, asking God to make us aware of the access points. Man, it is hot out there. As we grow in our walk with God, we will become more uncomfortable with sin in our lives. Do you believe that statement is true? Okay. If that statement is true, then it would also be fair to uh, say that, God, I want to be aware of how sin has access, how the enemy has access. I could have complete freedom over certain sins, and I can struggle immensely with others. I have freedom here, but I don't have freedom here. Why? I would argue that there's a door that's open that needs closed. Let's dive into Mark for a few minutes. We're going to look at the... Uh, instances in Mark where Jesus cast out demons, where we see these powerful encounters, and I'm going to ask us to filter them through the lenses of access and authority. So who is Jesus? He's the one who cast out demons. This is what Mark wanted us to catch. Mark wanted us to see that as he's telling the story of Jesus, I want you to know this. This is what he was about. Mark 1, 21 through 28, we see the story of the possessed man in the synagogue. And again, I'm going to recap these things. We're not doing uh, an expository study on the book of Mark where we're reading verse by verse. We're, we're looking at it topically. And so this story, uh, we see this man in the synagogue, in the house of worship, who was a believing Jew, not necessarily believing in Jesus Christ. You guys ever think about this? If, if a Jewish person died... Well, Jesus was alive, well, they didn't give their life to Christ, how did that all play out? What, what happened? They were believing Jews. And so there was this, this transition time, and I don't have all the answers of, well, if, if you met Jesus Christ and you didn't give your life to him and you said, no, you're not the Messiah, you rejected him, well, then did they go to heaven? 
It's a great question for a, a theologian such as yourself to ask at some point. But anyway, here's this man who was a believing man. He had faith. He was a uh, person in the synagogue. And all of a sudden, he presents a demon. And the demon speaks, and he says, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus said, Be quiet and come out of him. And the man shook, and the evil spirit came out with a shriek. Okay. First, again, this man was a worshiper in the synagogue. The second thing that's of note is the demon inside of that man recognized Jesus' authority. Jesus simply had to speak, and the demon obeyed. The issue of access is not even addressed here. Where did the demon come from? Why was he in the synagogue? Why did this not happen before? What's going on here? Mark does not even address those things. He just says, hey, Jesus came, he went to church, and he cast out a demon. Cool. Because for Mark, this has to be commonly understood as normal. Otherwise, he would have explained it. Second, verse 134. And all it says is, Jesus also drove out many demons. Again, this seems to be written as a casual statement. Its meaning is just supposed to be understood that this was a normal part of Jesus' ministry. Wherever Jesus went... He taught, and he cast out demons. Similar, Mark 1.39, Jesus went along preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Okay, Jesus again is encountering the demonic in houses of worship. What's up with that? Who was he preaching to? Well, if he's in the house of worship, worship he was preaching to Jews. We also see that he, he ministered to Gentiles and did the same with them. There is no indicator of religious preference that the demons afflict. They're, they're not specific to any one group of people. Anyone can be attacked. Mark 3.11, whenever evil spirits saw him, they cried out, you are the son of God. When the Jews were struggling to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the demons declared his identity to those around him. Think about that for a second. Here you are, living in that culture. You've been a God-fearing Jew your whole life, and here's this man coming and saying he's the Son of God. I don't know if I believe him. Well, there's a demon inside of this man that believes who he is, and he's crying out, telling everyone. I go, Satan, that's a really bad plan of action. You're, you're revealing this mystery to everybody, and you're confirming this man's identity. Why would you do that? Well, it's interesting because the demons responded to Jesus and his authority. You are the Son of God. In Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we come across one of these scenes that is very, very powerful and very graphic. There's this man, the demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs, the catacombs where the dead bodies were. His home, where he lived. We see that uh, Jesus was seen from a distance. This man saw Jesus from a distance, ran out of the tomb, fell to his knees and said, What do you want with me, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of the Most High God? Again, declaring his identity. And he knew 
his ultimate future. Swear that you won't torture me. The demon already knows his fate is sealed to come. They find out his name was Legion, for we are many, and ultimately Jesus cast that legion of demons into the pigs, and the pigs went over and died, and all the farmers were like, what the heck are you doing? You just killed our pigs. Regardless, here we see that demons have names and they have rank. Some are more powerful than others. That's interesting. Again, the issue of access is not addressed here. What's the backstory? Why? How did this man become demon-possessed? Why was he living in the tombs? Why did he have superhuman strength? What's going on here? We don't know. Again, we can only assume that for Mark, this was normal. This was what some people went through. That was life. We're not given the details of access. Well, in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, the disciples drove out many demons. Okay, we see that God's authority was delegated by Jesus to his disciples. Understand this. We will be talking about in a couple of weeks that Jesus is the one whom the disciples did not understand. Mark is very clear. The disciples didn't get it. So this is taking place in the middle of the disciples still trying to figure out who is Jesus. And, and we believe he's the son of God, but what does that really mean? And, and, well, he's doing all these cool things, and he's telling us we can do them too. And so they went out, and they cast out demons in Jesus' name. And they didn't have hardly any training. Jesus said, do it. They went out, and they did it. The disciples still did not fully understand who Jesus was at that point. Interesting. Mark 7, verses 24 through 29, we see the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. Who are you? I am the Syrophoenician man. Uh, I'm the Shelbyite. Who are you? I mean, this is an interesting story because we see that this woman begged Jesus to drive out the demon in her daughter. Her reply was basically saying, hey, the children's bread, uh, you know, I got to feed my kids first, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles is the understanding because Jesus came first to save the Jews, also to save the Gentiles. And so this conversation ensues and she says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the plate of where people are eating. And he said basically, hey, because of your response, your daughter is healed. The demon has left your daughter. Interesting story. Jesus, you sound kind of rude there. Let me finish eating first, and then, and then maybe we'll talk. Let me, let me meet the needs of, of my people first, and then I'll meet your needs. All we know is that Jesus did honor her request. Again, the issue of access is not addressed here. Here's a young child. Why? How in the world does this happen? What's going on here? Mark doesn't give us any details. And finally, Mark 9, 17 through 29, we see that there's a boy with an evil spirit. We see that this is the one the disciples could not drive out. The boy was robbed of speech. The evil spirit was throwing him into the fire to harm him. The conversation with the man, uh, the father of this child and Jesus goes like this. If you can, Jesus, can you heal my son? And, and Jesus said, if I can. And we get this verse, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus simply commanded the deaf and dumb spirit to come out. And Jesus has this conversation with the disciples in verse 29 afterwards. Jesus, how come we couldn't cast out the demon in that boy? And Jesus responded, this kind can only come out by prayer and in other gospels by prayer and fasting. Again, the issue of access is not addressed here. So I have a few questions. Why? 
is access never addressed in Mark's gospel? It would appear that it is assumed that demons need cast out, and it is the role of those who follow Jesus to do so. That was a common understanding in Jesus' day. Demons need cast out. Those who follow Jesus are the ones responsible to do that. It would also appear that the demons respond to authority in such a way that they present themselves. You don't have to go looking for them in this gospel. They just come. Now, this does not seem to be our experience here in the U.S. Does it mean that demons just don't operate here? Or is this our experience because we are not walking fully in our authority? I shared with you some stories last week about a missionary friend of mine, Pete Brockup, and they were Pete's stories. Walking into villages, and the witch doctors would come up and try to physically assault them to get them to leave. And Pete had a great time interacting with witch doctors because the witch doctors realized that Pete walked in spiritual authority. Interesting. I shared how I was in, in Casablanca in Morocco, and we sat down, uh, a student and I, um, as we were waiting for our flight the next day, and this man comes up to us and just starts yelling at us and cursing us. And it was evident that there was a demonic presence that was speaking. Okay, that was interesting. Do I experience that here? Have you ever been walking somewhere in a, in a room or in a crowded area, and you've walked by somebody, and you've seen something happen? I saw it yesterday. Miriam and I were driving home, um, and we're in Shelby, and we're passing a vehicle. And there's four people in the vehicle, and it looked like a, a mother and her adult son. And the adult, as he was sitting in the, the front passenger seat, was leaning over and just yelling at his mother. I mean, just tearing into her. The expressions on his face, I go, this is not a normal human response. There is something else driving this response. Did he have a demon? I don't know. Have you ever been in a situation where you go, there is something dark here that needs addressed? Or there's a person that I have a, a, a sense of, of trepidation. I'm not sure if it's, I should be in the same room with that person alone. Here's the big question. It all comes down to this simple question that I believe the enemy does not want us to wrestle with. Is it possible that a Christian might need deliverance from a demonic spirit. Growing up in church, oh, growing up in church, my dad was a pastor. And so we had a lot of theological understanding based on his lack of experience. What do I mean by that? If I have an experience that it, didn't ha it doesn't happen because if, if I would experience it, then I know it was from God. But I haven't experienced that, so therefore it must not happen. When it came to spiritual warfare, it was a situation that we never talked about. We didn't talk about demonic things. We didn't talk about uh, walking in our spiritual authority. It was just, if you behave this way, you'll be fine. If you do the right things, you'll be protected. All we need to do is pray for protection and we'll be okay. And so that was what I was taught. And I believe this is true. A person who is a believer in Jesus Christ cannot be possessed by the devil. Why? Because possession has everything to do with ownership. All right, so let me just explain that here. 
is it possible for a Christian to need deliverance from a demonic spirit? Uh, possession versus demonization. Many times we see um, in the Greek that it doesn't say this person was possessed. It literally, the translation is, they had a demon. They had a demon. They had a dog. They had a cat. They had a demon. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they were overcome and that the enemy had control over them. It just meant there was an attachment or there was access. Christians cannot be owned by Satan. It's an issue of ownership that was settled with allegiance. Looking at Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1.13, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Understand that we, as believers, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, the enemy cannot indwell you, cannot possess you, but he can oppress you. The idea of oppression, I think, is a lot deeper than my growing up ever gave credit to. What does it mean to be oppressed? And is it possible for a Christian to be oppressed at a very high level? Well, let's look at Scripture, some stories. One such story is found in a Christ follower who had a strong satanic influence, Judas Iscariot. Interesting. Well, it says that he was a disciple and an apostle. What does that mean? Well, quoting from Matthew 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And Judas Iscariot was one of them. He walked in spiritual authority. He prayed for healing and people were healed. He cast out demons. What does it mean for him to be chosen? In Luke 6.13 it says, When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles. Jesus chose Judas. The implication here is, is very simple. Judas was a believer. Okay. Interesting. Well, what does that mean? Well, in John 13.27, when Judas betrayed Jesus, it said, Satan entered into him. What I believe is that there was a door that was opened. You can call it pride, you can call it greed, you can call it whatever you want, but when Judas said, yeah, I'll take that 40 pieces of silver, there was no invitation, hey, come on in, let's have a party. It was, I'm going to compromise and I'm going to open the door. When the door is open, the enemy has access. When the door is closed, he does not. Okay, well, let's look at another example. Ananias and Sapphira. You guys might be familiar with their story. What's going on here? Well, they were members of a community of faith. We read about them in Acts chapter 5. They let Satan fill their hearts. Now, here's the story. The church in Acts in this time, they, they were passionate about the mission. And so in their story, in their situation, people were selling their property and giving it all to uh, the common good. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they sell, we'll just call it, they sold their farm. And they were like, hey, we're going to keep half of this, which was fine. But they told everybody that they gave all of the money to the church, to the mission. And so they lied because they wanted to have an appearance of being something and their actions did not back it up. 
So what happened? As a result, they lied to the Holy Spirit and to the church. Oh, and by the way, they died. Um, pillars of salt. You guys remember that story? <sighs> Don't lie to God. Got it. But here we go. Satan filled their hearts is what we read. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we talk about this. Anywhere that we, 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 we give ourselves over to sin, we're taking room away from the Holy Spirit to fill us. Like a jar, you throw some rocks in, well, then it can't be filled completely with water because it's got a bunch of rocks in it. The rocks have got to come out in order for you to be completely filled. Well, they had some major boulders in their heart, and basically Scripture is saying that their hearts, Satan filled them. What does that mean? Here's another interesting example, Paul and the thorn in the flesh. This story, uh, Paul describes there was an affliction, something that, that affected him. What does he say? He says, this is in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, a messenger of Satan was sent to torment me. He asked God to remove this ailment three times. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so here's a disciple of Christ saying, Lord, there's, there's something that's going on, this thorn in the flesh, it's a, a, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Okay, would you say he was oppressed? Maybe. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Many people talk about it as maybe it was blindness. Uh, maybe it was this, this lust. We don't know. But he says, God, take this away. There's something going on here. I want you to get rid of it. And God says, you know what? No, I'm not. I'm allowing the enemy access. Why? Because I want you to know my grace is sufficient for you, for my power has been perfect in weakness. Okay. There are other biblical passages that, that beg us to uh, be vigilant against the direct attacks of the kingdom of darkness. I think my slides are out of order here, so I'll just skip ahead to this real quick. My goodness, my, I might have deleted that slide. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Here it is. And so in Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, it talks about don't give the enemy a foothold. You know, this, this whole passage of don't let the sun go down on your anger, because if you do... Uh, you'll give the devil a foothold. Okay, what is a foothold? What does that look like? Is it access? If I'm harboring bitterness in my heart, I will not forgive this person. I will choose to stay in my anger. Is that access? I, I believe that it is because God tells us, live this way, do these things. And if you're choosing bitterness and anger and hate, the door's open. No, I don't want Satan to come in, but I want to be angry. I, I do not want to forgive that person. I am telling you this. A lack of forgiveness. A bitter root. There are very specific images in Scripture. Think of a bitter root. A root that grows down and takes hold. You try to pull out a tree stump? Have you ever tried to do that? It is, yeah, you might have broken a truck or two, try, or a hand or two. It is hard because it takes hold. Maybe. Just maybe you have not experienced the authority of Christ in your life because you have a bitter root that you are not willing to let God uproot. Goodness, I, this stuff, it blows my mind. 1 Timothy 3.7 talks about um, the, the elders and the deacons and says, Don't, it says he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. I believe this is talking about pride. We already talked about 1 Peter 5, 
uh, about the enemy uh, prowls around looking for someone to devour. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, it talks about escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The idea that uh, there are snares, there are ways in which the enemy can grab a hold of us and oppress and torment. Well, here's what I really wanted to talk about this morning, and I've shared this with a number of people. How is the enemy given access in our lives? I shared the story of uh, a friend who called and said, my daughters are having nightmares, can you come? And as we walked through this, I didn't even have to get to step number two. He goes, no, personal sin, that's it right here. I've got all my pornography hidden in my DVR, and I've got a stack of magazines in my toolbox in the basement. I need to get rid of this stuff. Yeah, you do. When you choose personal sin, and I would even argue corporate sin, and I'll explain that in a second. When you choose into this, you are opening the door, saying, God, I want you to fill my heart. I want you to fill my life, but I'm also going to let other things in. I'm going to crack that door open. No one needs to know. No, no one needs to know. It's a secret thing. When you have doors that are propped open, whomever wants to can come in at any time. Do you understand? When we sin, we are giving access to the enemy. That's why the Bible talks over and over again about confessing your sin. When you confess that sin, you're closing that door. But some of us go, I've closed that door a thousand times, and it seems to just keep popping back open. We'll get to that in a second. Corporate sin, what do I mean by that? Um, I shared with you again about one of, my church, one of the churches my dad served in, and they had a history of infidelity, a history of the pastor's living sexually immoral lives, and there was this attachment to the church that existed because the corporate sin was never dealt with, never repented of. I believe firmly that when um, a pastor comes into a church uh, to, to lead, that there has to be an assessment done. Hey, is there any unforgiveness? Is there anything that we've done to wrong anyone in the community or the community itself that we need to repent for? Because corporately, we have a responsibility. How does the enemy have access? Assignment. In Nyack, New York, there is a strong um, witch population, people who are into witchcraft. And there was numerous attempts to plant a church in Nyack, New York, in downtown, and they were all unsuccessful. Come to find out, the coven that existed in that area would meet on a regular basis to pray against the work of God in that community. And so one of the ways that access was given was because there was an assignment against. And so when we say, Lord, why, do not, why don't we have authority here? Well, it came down to there's this open door over here. And so it wasn't, let's burn down the coven. No, no, we don't do that. But we ended up praying blessing and God's uh, deliverance for those individuals. And in Nyack, we saw a number of people who were in witchcraft come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And churches were planted successfully in that area. But there was a stronghold that needed revealed. I only know of a handful of people outside of missionaries who live overseas that can identify people praying against them in not Jesus' name. My mom is one, and I'll tell you my mom's story. Um, when she was in college, she uh, had a fervent faith in Jesus Christ. 
her conversion to Christianity was dramatic. And she saw God do some powerful things. Well, in nursing school, uh, she was very vocal about her faith. And there was a, a practicing witch that was in nursing school with her and said, you know what? I'm going to pray curses on you because I don't appreciate the way you're sharing your faith. She was in a car accident the next day. God spared her life. But that woke her up to the reality of, okay, I have to do work here spiritually. I'm going to pray blessing on this person, not curses. I'm going to ask for uh, protection in my life. Yes, but God, I want you to close that door. In Jesus' name, I, I, I come against the curses that were spoken against me. My mom's story went on like this. During that time where my parents divorced, my mom got involved with a Bible study. A Bible study that did not follow Scripture. And come to find out after about three or four months in this Bible study, she would come home different, and there was this sense of something's not right. Well, in this particular Bible study, they were praying to angels and worshiping angels. Now, my mom's a pastor's wife. Well, why would you? Well, it wasn't presented that way, but it ended up going there, where you put someone or something else above Jesus. They're in a place that they shouldn't be. And so... Again, in that situation, I would call that personal sin where she entered into something that was not honoring God. Next is generational curse. This is interesting. If you... Have you guys ever done a genogram? Do you guys know what... Raise your hand if you know what a genogram is. pastor did preach on this about four years ago and I showed you a bunch of pictures of my family tree. You guys remember that when I had the pictures of... That's a genogram where you look at your family tree and you go... Oh, okay, that's what you're doing. Family tree, you should have just said that. Um, you look at your family history, and you go, okay, this is you know, my grandfather, my grandmother, you know, my dad, uncles, brothers, sisters, all the way down. Whenever I do marriage counseling, I always have the couples do a genogram because I want them to look at their family history patterns. And I promise you this, there are patterns that you will see. In my family tree, anger goes back very, very far. I mean, it is bad. In my family tree, discouragement and criticism goes back very, very far, where a critical spirit exists, and that's just how dad was, that's how grandma was, that's how great-grandpa was, it's just how they were. Alcoholism, physical abuse are a part of my family tree. And so I look at this and I go, God, what are the patterns that exist because I don't want that pattern to be passed on to the next generation. I want to break any generational curses. It turns out in some families' lives, I've got friends that uh, witchcraft and, and um, devil worship was a part of their family tree. And so they, God revealed this stuff to them. Where is the access point? Uh, I read a story of a friend who, who walked through, a uh, Korean man, and uh, as he's praying, God, I've been delivered from this, I've been delivered, and, and every time it comes back, why do I continue to struggle with these things? And through prayer and fasting, um, uh, somebody was praying with me, he goes, I, I have this, this word, I don't understand what it means, and he says, uh, good father, no, Godfather. Long story short, this man's Godfather uh, dedicated him to the enemy when he was an infant. He had no knowledge of this, but God revealed that knowledge to him. And so as the generational curse was broken, that man finally entered into freedom. 
So I'm not saying that all sin is a matter of, of demonic influence. I'm not saying that your personal sin is not your responsibility. What I am saying is, are we asking the question, why don't I have authority here? Some of you have never struggled with alcohol. You have complete authority over alcohol. Others don't. Why do I continue to go back to this? Some of you have, have complete authority over foul language. It's not a part of your vocabulary. It's not in your mind. In fact, you can't even comprehend those words coming out of your mouth. You don't struggle with that. Others do. Why don't I have authority here? This is a great assessment to do. The next one, idols and objects. What are you talking about, Pastor? A couple stories. Um, I shared this one a couple years ago. Uh, Chuck and Ingrid Davis, they were going to the mission field, and as they entered into the mission field, they had this apartment that all the missionaries into this African country stayed in before they got their home. And they looked back over the last 12, 15 years, every married couple, every missionary couple that stayed into that apartment had marital issues, and many of them left the field and left the ministry. And they were like, God, we, we understand authority. What's going on here? Is there any personal sin in our lives? Because they started feeling these marital tensions, and they were arguing, and, and they're realizing something's not right. God, is there anything that we're doing that's creating this, this block? Okay, is there an assignment against us? No, we're, we're asking God. You're telling us that there's not an assignment. Are there generational curses that we're not aware of? No. It finally came down to, God, there, there's something in this apartment that is giving the enemy access. What is it? And so they began to pray over their house or their apartment. Come to find out there's this painting that was over the mantle. And uh, it was just some African painting. They, you know, nothing significant or special, but they both felt in their spirit this is the access point. So they talked to the owner of the apartment who was a believer. And uh, they said, can you tell us about this painting? Not, this painting the, the, is the devil, it needs to go. They said, can you tell us about this? Where did this come from? What's going on? The, the long and the short of it is this, that it was a part of her family. And uh, when she was growing up, there was a, uh, we'll call it a witch doctor that lived, that, that gave their family this painting and said, this will give you blessings. But the blessing is not coming from God. In the end, they were able to convince the owner, hey, we, we believe that this has a curse attached to it, and is it okay if we remove this? He goes, remove it. We'll burn it. Yeah, absolutely. They got rid of the painting, and the issues ended. Let me give you a, a, a Western example of this. Yeah. Okay, so pastor's talking, and I, I get really jazzed up about these things. People call me say, pastor, can you, can you come over and help me with something? I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. My kids are struggling with X, Y, and Z. I don't understand what's happening. Can you help me figure this out? Hey, we'll pray. I, uh, I'm an idiot for the king. Uh, I don't have the answers, but God does. My friend Jeff says that. I love it. Uh, I, I know he has the answers. So a couple years ago, uh, somebody connected to our church, but not in our church, said, hey, uh, can you come over and help me process through something? And it was severe anxiety. And we sit down and we start, we, we pray, we ask God, we ask the Holy Spirit to come. And, and I walk through these four steps. Personal sin, no, I'm, I'm good. I've actually, I'm not doing that stuff. Uh, assignment, not that I can think of. I'm asking God, I'm not sensing anything. Generational curses, no, I'm not, I'm not sensing anything. When I get to objects, he goes, I know exactly what it is. You didn't let me finish my story. He goes, no, I know exactly what it is. This individual was a tattoo artist. And prior to his conversion... Christianity, uh, really giving his life to Christ, 
he was heavily involved with satanic drawings and tattoos. And so he said, I, I don't know why, but I've kept my tattoo book. I mean, it's my artwork. I, 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 I'm proud of the work that I've done. Instantly, God said, this has to go. Lo and behold, we remove those objects from the home. Uh, I believe he burned them, and he began to walk in greater levels of freedom. Now, is he completely free from anxiety? I don't believe so. But I do know that he has taken a huge step forward. So as we're talking about this stuff, I'm curious, and I don't want you to respond, but what is resonating with your heart? If you feel uncomfort, like your stomach is doing backflips, that's probably the Holy Spirit saying, hey, there's something in your life that needs to go because I want more of you. I want full access. I've been wrestling whether or not to share this story with you guys because I, I don't know how you will interpret it. I know exactly what it means in my life. So I talk about sin that I have authority over and sin that I just continue to wrestle with. And so, yes, this is going to be a full transparency moment with you. I've, I've talked to the elders about this, and I said, I don't know if I can share this because how is it going to come across? But I'm completely confident in this. There are sins that I don't struggle with. And when I say struggle, I mean I don't even feel temptation for. It's, it's a, it's a non-starter with me. Some of my non-starters are things that you struggle with deeply. It breaks my heart. One of the areas that I have not found freedom from temptation from has been lust with my eyes. I think many men can relate to that. It does not mean that I live at, <laughs> I don't even know what you call those places. Uh, never mind, that's a bad analogy. It doesn't mean that I'm invested in those things. <laughs> Using army terminology is not appropriate in the church context. Um, it doesn't mean that I live there. It doesn't mean that I camp out there. It just means that there's this battle that has, is, I've not found authority over until about three weeks ago. And this is why I want to share this with you is because there is a difference in me because I have authority over something that I have not had authority over in a long time. And so I shared the story with the elders um, as I've been praying through that question in my own life, why do I not have authority here? That is one of the most powerful questions you could ever ask God because he will give you the answer. One of the things that came up was, okay, generational stuff. I've, 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 God, I thought we've broken those curses. I thought we've walked through that. I see this issue as a generational thing in my family. Addressed it, dealt with it, kicked it in the butt, said it's done. When I was a teenager, I struggled greatly with desiring to honor God with my faith and at the same time, not wanting to do things that would cause me to sin. My first experience with pornography was when I was in sixth grade. I was walking home from school. I shared this story too. And it, walking back with a friend in an alley, there's a, there's a couple magazines on the ground. And I'm like, dude, what's that? He goes, dude, what's that? And we look at this, whoa, whoa. We put it back down. And we said, okay, we don't, yeah, yeah. We go home and I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's been about 20 minutes. I want to go back and get that magazine. My friend beat me to it because he had the exact same thought. Thank God. That was my first experience. And I go, okay, this stuff is bad. I don't want to have any, any access to this. I don't want to look at things. I, that struggle was real. So this is where it gets kind of weird, and I just ask you to bear with me. I remember going to bed at night going, 
It's not sin for me to dream about these things. Huh. I can have the best of both worlds if I have these dreams, but I don't actually do things with my eyes. And I remember God is bringing this up. Why do I not have access, or why do I not have authority here? I prayed, not to God, not to anybody that I knew, man, I really wish I'd have these dreams, because then it's the best of both worlds. Access was given. And do I understand this completely? No. But I, God, I, I renounce that in the name of Jesus. I ask that you would bind any spirit that I've given access into my heart and to my life back 20, 30 years ago. For whatever reason, authority has now been given in greater measure than I've had it ever before in my entire life. I want that for you. I want that for you. The things that you struggle with, the things that you go, God, I, I don't necessarily give in to temptation, but it is always there. It's like a thorn in my flesh. I want it gone. God may say, no, I, I, I want you to worship me in your weakness. And he may say, all right, there's access that you need to be aware of. This sermon is not meant to strike fear into your heart, but it is meant to spur you on into freedom because some of you, and I say you as a collective us, are in bondage to sin. You are, and you know it. And many of you have cried out to God, I want to be free from this. You've confessed the sin, and you've gone back to the sin. And you've confessed the sin, and you've gone back to the sin. Why do you not have authority in that area? I'm inviting you to pray and ask God to reveal that to you. Guys, I am seeing heavy hearts right now. I am seeing the enemy working overtime, just pouring on the shame and the guilt and the condemnation. That is not from God. That does not come from your Father in heaven. You were created to be free. You were created to know His strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so this is all about God. Would you show us so that we can be free, not so that we can just be filled with shame and guilt? But the biggest question is this. Do you want to be free? Some of you are going to come to grips with something right now. You love God, but you love your sin more. And if you love your sin more, then you don't want to be free. You don't. And because God loves you, He will never force you into something that is against your will. He will never force you into loving Him more than you love sin, because that's not love. What are the access points? Now, a good friend of mine said, Hey, Pastor, whenever you preach, can you just, you know, end on a high note so that we don't go out walking out depressed and stuff? You know who you are, and here's your high note. Should we fear? Absolutely not. Why? There's the believer's sixfold area of protection. What do I mean by that? In Job 1.10, uh, we see this. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan said? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Satan's talking to God saying, remove the hedge of protection. Let me mess with him. I don't say that to get you to think, well, God, don't remove your hedge of protection around us. I want you to understand there is a hedge of protection around you. We can pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, would you 
set up a wall of protection against the enemy in my life. Second, you have the Holy Spirit's power and Christ in you. Colossians 1.29, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. You have his power in you. Should you be afraid? No, because God in you is stronger than the enemy in the world. But you, by yourself, are not stronger than him. Authority of the relationship in Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You have been raised given a position of authority in Christ Jesus. The classic, the armor of God. You may know this. Ephesians uh, 6.10 talks about uh, the full armor of God. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks because I think we, we misunderstand this. We go, I just prayed on the armor. I prayed on the armor. Well, sometimes you don't need to pray on the armor. You just need to use the weapon that God intended for that purpose. God, give me the sword of the Spirit. Give me the shield of faith. Give me the helmet of salvation. At the same time, does anybody know what Isaiah 58.8 says off the top of your head. I forgot this one until recently. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Somebody once said, hey, I love the armor of God, but uh, there's nothing to, to protect my backside. Uh, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. We have angels. Hebrews 4.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And at the same time, we have the body of Christ. We are in this together. So listen to me. I'm going to have Mike come up and close us in just a moment. I want you to understand something. You and I, we don't have to fear the enemy. But if you've got unresolved sin in your life, there is cause for concern. The door is open. We've got to close that door. You don't have to do it alone. Listen to me at the same time. There are things that may have happened to you in your past. Where a door was forced open in your life and now you're dealt, you're, you're left dealing with the consequences. I think of my own life and the emotional abuse that I've suffered and the voice that I continue to hear or heard growing up was the voice of my stepdad telling me, that I was worthless. He kicked the door open and the enemy took root and I believe the enemy's lies. Some of you have dealt with more than just emotional abuse. Some of you have dealt with physical abuse. Guys, there is ground that the enemy has taken by force that we need to take back. And so, as Mike comes, Mike, would you also close us with just a prayer of blessing and protection um, after you share your thoughts? Because, guys, listen... This is real. But you don't have to be afraid because you are a child of God and you were created to live and walk in His freedom.